I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. I'm joined today by Bio's recently announced incoming CEO and president, Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath. Dr. McMurray-Heath, one of the problems the biotech industry's faced is an inability to describe its promise and its challenges in a simple, clear, believable way. Its critics have simple messages. They say drugs cost too much, drug companies contributed to the opioid epidemic, other things like that. How do you explain to skeptics, not to the industry itself, but to skeptics, why the biopharma industry is important and why it should be supported? Mm. Well, maybe I'm too much of a scientist, Steve, but I think about examples. And I think the current crisis that we face with COVID is a perfect example of how science is the promise of the future. Without technological breakthroughs, we will not be able to face the biggest challenges of our time. This is true for the environment, it's true for a healthy food supply, but it's also clarifyingly true right now when it comes to health. You know, we're facing this massive pandemic and our only hope, our only hope is that science makes a breakthrough that helps us combat it. And so it's not always easy to tell the story of scientific innovation. Science is complicated, particularly when the easy questions have been answered and what's left are really complex problems and complex solutions. But we have to keep our eyes on the patients, the patients that are waiting for breakthroughs, the patients who die without cures, and the patients who are hungry for our businesses to be able to produce solutions that help them heal and get better and live healthier lives. So yesterday when we spoke, you said that science is a social justice issue. What did you mean by that? And what will you at Bio and what do you think its member companies should do to make that real? So to me, you know, they say knowledge is power, but knowledge is power and progress. And science has the ability to be the great equalizer. You know, I grew up in Oakland, California, and when there are poor communities that are faced with environmental challenges, difficulty accessing healthy food, health concerns that dwarf those that you find in wealthier communities, the thing that is really going to make a difference in those communities' lives is scientific breakthrough and ingenuity. And so the question of can we keep both the faucet open to innovation, the faucet open to new inventions that really produce new solutions and ideas, and at the same time, ensure access to those inventions. That is, to me, the most pressing social justice issue we face. Because without science, without those technological breakthroughs, those communities, those vulnerable communities that today suffer from the biggest health concerns, the biggest environmental challenges, and the poorest nutrition will continue to suffer. And so we need to start to think about this as how we as a society assure just access to both the science that's needed and the fruits of the research. So a lot of people, when they hear about the idea of social justice and the biopharmaceutical industry, are immediately going to leap to where you're ending up there about access. And access is also an issue for many about pricing. So what are your thoughts about how to improve access to the fruits of the scientific research that you've eloquently said is really needed? To me, there is no access without something to have access to. You both need to figure out how as a society you're going to make sure that patients are shielded from exorbitant out-of-pocket costs, but at the same time get the therapies that they need. But you at the same time have to ensure that those therapies are created in the first place. 
And so these conversations should go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And I think too often we focus on just one end of that pendulum, both as scientists and as policymakers. And we really need to think about how this is an interdependent system. We need to ensure access. That is, that is key. That's essential. Patients need to be able to afford the medicines and the therapies they need. But we also need to make sure we do it in a way that doesn't turn down the rate of innovation because the slower that rate goes, the more patients die waiting. So you seem to be suggesting, and certainly it's something I've heard others in the biopharmaceutical industry suggest, that the main issue on access and pricing is out-of-pocket costs, that these are the things that drive patient anger and disappointment, and that if you eliminate or reduce out-of-pocket costs, you've solved the problem. Is, is that the way that you look at it? I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, we have to figure out what is the most efficient and effective way to generate the research. And then we have to figure out how we holistically, as a society, are going to pay for it for those who can't afford it. And so part of that comes down to, at the end of the day, the out-of-pocket costs that an individual patient may see but it's not just about that. It's about how do we decide what is the most pivotal research to do? How do we make sure that research is funded sufficiently? And then how do we make sure that patients can get it in a way that's not overly burdensome? So it's an ecosystem and we have to think about how we support each and every stage of that ecosystem. So one of the things I think that's likely to come out of this pandemic is, is a push to ensure that all Americans have access to healthcare. And it's not clear how that's going to be accomplished, but I think that one of the things that will accompany that will be also a push for drug price controls, either for negotiation of Medicare drug prices or something else. How would you respond to people who say, on the one hand, that we do need to have universal access to healthcare? I don't think anyone would deny that. And, and on the other, that part of the uh, way that that has to happen is to have controls on the prices of drugs or uh, what people would euphemistically call government negotiation of Medicare drug prices? Well, I think if we look around the globe, it's been interesting to me that in this crisis, at the end of the day, people are turning to the United States for the scientific solutions. We have the most robust, the most vibrant collection of entrepreneurs, small businesses that are geared at developing the latest, greatest science of any nation in the world. And that has not always been the case, but there are other countries in the world who have tried differing approaches to control prices and in the same swipe inadvertently control or shut down innovation. We need to make sure that we are ensuring both, that we are delivering things in a way that patients can receive them, but also not shutting down the rate of giving new ideas out the door. So we can't talk without talking about what's happening right now. The, there's this extraordinary level of collaboration you've mentioned uh, among companies that are usually fierce competitors. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the industry and how you are gonna seize this moment to communicate about this extraordinary collaboration and to bring the public into this search for therapies and for vaccines? You know, I was at the bench for 12 years and studying the immune system. And it was 
fascinating to me how complex it was, how painstakingly slow the research was, because it's really difficult to answer scientific questions and it takes a lot of trial and error and it's mostly error and occasionally you, you um, get it right and it, there's nothing more fulfilling, but it's a slow process. And it's been remarkable to me to see the speed at which our scientists are responding to this challenge. In the last 16 weeks alone, there have been over 400 projects started among bio companies to try to address the pandemic, 80 of which are vaccine development. I mean, all in this very short amount of time, and many of them involve these novel kinds of partnerships, public-private partnerships, big companies partnering with small companies, differing types of technologies, figuring out how to work together. And that type of unprecedented collaboration, speed, dedication, and drive is something that I, I hope we see continue. And I'm pretty confident we will because the results are also breathtaking. We're making huge strides in a short amount of time, and I know it's not fast enough, but I am really hopeful by the speed at which we've seen to date, and I know that there'll be really promising outcomes to come. So Tony Fauci has emerged as a public hero in this pandemic, and millions of Americans have come to know and to trust Scott Gottlieb from his appearances uh, on television and the media. But I don't think that there's a single biopharma leader or scientist who's come out of this, who's well-known to the public. Do you think that's right? Should they be staying in the background or should they become more public figures? And if so, how can we make that happen? Well, you know, before I came to bio, they started this amazing campaign called I Am Bio. And it's just so interesting because as I see it, there are countless heroes and sheroes of science who are in the trenches day after day, trying to answer these questions that are so important for our society to find the solutions to. And they are truly inspiring individuals. I mean, I think about Paul Stoffels, who's the chief scientific officer at J&J, who spent his career fighting HIV and has turned his attention to Ebola and is very close to producing an Ebola vaccine and is now leading that company's efforts towards fighting COVID. But there are a million of scientists like that across the country and in some instances across the world. And I think if we do a little bit better job at storytelling in science, it's been a challenge, I know, but if we do a little bit better job of storytelling and telling the personal background of many of these men and women who've been committed to improving human health for years and years and years, I think it could do a lot. So there is more that needs to be done there, that's for sure. So another place where I think there's more that needs to be done is patient engagement. Everybody in the industry now talks about patient engagement. They all claim to be patient-centric. But when I go out and talk to patient advocates, they say a lot of that is lip service. A lot of it's talk. Interestingly, a lot of them, I've spoken with several people in the last few days, and, and they've all pointed to you and said, well, that you were somebody that knew how to walk the walk, that you've actually made it happen when you were at FDA and when you are at J&J. Can you talk a little bit about what makes patient engagement real and what you think bio and its member companies need to do to make patients partners? I think it has a lot to do with how early you bring patients in, how clearly you listen to what they have to say, and then how realistically you respond. So too often, patient engagement efforts are a bow on top. You know, they're the icing on the cake. You bring patients in and say, oh, isn't it nice for us to work together at this very last stage? 
But what we did when I was at FDA was really sit down with patients, patient group representatives from lots of different types of patient communities. And I will say patients, patient advocates are the most well-informed, educated, motivated consumers in the entire country. They know their illnesses. They know what they need. They know what they can tolerate and what they can't. And it's rare for people to actually ask them those questions. But if you ask and say, okay, what is it going to take to really get you the types of solutions that you want and need, you'll get answers, but then you have to act on it. And that is necessary and it's possible. And what you find is that when you actually do partner with patients in that way, you get better results, you get better medicines, you get better implementation, you get quicker clinical trials, and it benefits everyone involved. So I deeply believe in that and I've seen the power of it. You know, we were able to find a way to systematize patient input so that it could be used in everyday decisions that the Food and Drug Administration makes about bringing new products to market. And it resulted in a whole new range of products that were getting to patients in a more timely manner. And yet they were products that patients could have confidence in as well. So partnering with patients is not even a nice to have anymore. It's a must do. And it has to be done in a way that respects the knowledge and the expertise that patients bring to the table. As you've just described, you had a deep experience at FDA. You were in industry or at J&J for years in leadership positions. Early in your career, you worked on the Hill. So you've been everywhere, done everything, right? (laughs) What do you see now that these three sectors need to do to change to make the medical progress that everybody needs happen much, much more rapidly and more efficiently? Well, one of the things I have had the privilege of being able to see from those different vantage points is how each of those legs of the stool misunderstand the other. I don't think there is a a deep-seated understanding, the headwinds that each of them face, the constituencies that each of them have to answer to, and the realities of how they do their work. And so being able to translate (laughs) those fears and concerns and aspirations to the different players is, I think, one of the things I can bring to the challenge, but it's critical that it be done because they don't always see each other clearly. But it's a shame because they are all, at least from what I've observed, working with the same goal in mind, which is improving people's lives. And they are committed to that goal. They get up every day and work long hours to meet that goal. And we have to realize that they're coming into the conversation with good intentions, but with very different personal experiences. And so a little bit of translation there may help. At least I hope it does. I want to end by asking you what you see for the future. The COVID-19 pandemic, it's given the public, I think, just a taste of of the terror that ordinary people feel when they're diagnosed with a life-threatening disease or their loved ones are. Are there lessons from this experience that we can bring forward to speed the search for treatments for other diseases and to maintain this same level of urgency when hopefully at some point in the not too near future, we're looking in the rearview mirror and COVID-19 has been tamed? Well, you know, just as science can be an equalizing force, illness is the ultimate equalizer because You know, it hits everyone, regardless of your life circumstances, your background, your race, ethnicity, it hits everyone. And so I hope 
that we don't lose the vulnerability that we've had to take a very close look at over the last weeks to months. I know it's been humbling for me and I think for a lot of folks to realize just how tenuous life can be at times. But, you know, there's hope in that as well, because when you start to realize that, it clarifies what's important. And I think we all need to double down on our commitments to those things that are most important in our lives, both on the personal level, but also on the policy level and when it comes to our beliefs and what we stand for and what we stand behind. So I'm hoping that that will be something that carries through this really trying time, something that persists and lasts because it's, it's important. Well, thank you. That's a good note to end on today. I hope we'll continue the conversation and podcasts and on the phone. And good luck to you at Bio. This is Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. All of BioCentury's coverage of COVID-19 product development, therapies, diagnostics, vaccines, and uh, public policy issues is available in front of the paywall uh, at www.biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. I encourage you all to look at the website. And thanks. That's, that's it for today. Thank you, Steve.